The rest of us turn in your Bibles. We're back in the book of Isaiah so we could finish what we started a year ago or so ago. Um, you're going to, family, you're going to need your Bibles open, your Bibles in the back, um, or have your apps open or your tablets, whatever you have your Bible. Um, you're going to need it this morning. We're covering four chapters uh, this morning. So you're going to need your Bibles open. The hospitality team is going to come by later and get your uh, dinner order uh, for uh, later. No, but we're, we're going to be in, 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 in several chapters. So we're going to be in chapters 56 through 59. So open your Bibles there. Uh, I want to wrap this up, this last 11 chapters in five weeks, so we can jump into that short series on disciple-making and then into the gospel according to Luke. So what I want to do right now is really just do a, a short recap because it's been a couple of months since we finished, uh, uh, you know, left the book of Isaiah. Um, this is the 45th sermon on Isaiah. All our sermons are online. Uh, if you want to, to look, you can. Um, chapters 1 through 55 are on there. This is number 45. Our series is called The Gospel According to Isaiah. Um, there's no other prophet in all the Old Testament that gives this, this, dip in the, this deep and rich revelation, a clearer, the most clear picture in the Old Testament of the person of Christ and the work of Christ than Isaiah, which, by the way, his name means the Lord is salvation. The major sections we said in Isaiah begins in chapter 1 and ends in chapter 39. If you remember that first major section in Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, God, through Isaiah, his prophet, whom he called in chapter 6, to speak to his people about their covenant-breaking sins, their their sins of pride, their their sins of, of, of fear of man. Abusive leadership, oppression of the poor and the fatherless, their failure to trust God. Remember Ahaz, the king, made this foolish and ungodly alliance with foreign nations, how fear had gripped his heart. And we learned, as we were going through that with this, when COVID was going on, that it's good to be concerned, it's okay to be careful, but it's not okay to be gripped by fear. It's not okay. God's in control. And God had given his people many, ter- many chances in his grace, in his mercy, to turn from their idolatry, turn from their fears, and to trust him, but they refused. And what God did was he sent his hand of discipline, his chastisement, through the army in which they feared, which was the Assyrian army. And the Assyrian army marched into Israel and, and disciplined God's people. And we, we said that God disciplines those he loves. It's a sign of love if God chastises us. Hebrews 12 teaches that very clearly. And Isaiah, excuse me, uh, God taught Israel and Judah a lesson through the Assyrian army. If you remember, we ended in chapter 39, or toward the end of chapter 39, with the failure of King Hezekiah. That's really important. God told Hezekiah that his descendants will be exiled into Babylon because of their rebellion. And his response, if you remember, was, good, I'm glad it's not me. All right? And the first major section, chapter 39, ends with this desire, this, this, this wanting, this yearning for a true and better king. Ahaz blew it, Hezekiah blew it, all the kings of Israel blow it at one point. And they're looking for that king that Isaiah spoke about often through the first 39 chapters. You get to chapter 9, he says there's a king in the line of David who will come, he's the promised son whose eternal kingdom will be established and be upheld with justice and righteousness forevermore. 
And we know that the true and better king that all of mankind is waiting for, who will uphold the world, who will reign over the world, who establish his justice and rights over the world, is Jesus the Christ. And so chapter 39 ends, and God's unrepentant people are heading into exile as we open up chapter 40. And chapter 40 through chapter 55 was the next major section that we just finished. Remember, Isaiah is in the 8th century, it's around 700 B.C., and he's speaking to a people in the 6th century, he's prophesying in advance. He's talking to a people that were in exile, that were in Babylon. Remember, that's what God said was going to happen, and God proved what he was going to do. And Isaiah is writing in chapters 40 through 55 to, to, to comfort his people, to remind them of their salvation, because now they're being exiled. Now they're in a foreign nation and family. Sometimes we, we get to that place where the world is crushing down around us. And there's so many things going on that we need to be comforted and reminded that this world is not our home. It's not our home. It's not our permanent residency. And God promises them that he will, while in exile, he'll forgive them of their sins. He will, he will reveal his glory, his incomparable greatness, and his sovereignty over all nations. And we need to hear that today. God's sovereign over America. And God's sovereign over the election process. Chapters 40 through 55 speak not only of, of God's comfort and God's salvation, but gives us, very importantly in this second section, gives us a description of how he was going to do that through, if you remember, the servant of the Lord. God promises this great return from exile. Their salvation would happen through this servant uh, at that time, historically, the anointed Messiah who was Cyrus, king of Persia. He was, a, he was a type of servant, a type of Messiah, Messiah that pointed ultimately to the king, the servant, the anointed, the Messiah, who, who would not deliver us from, from Babylon, but deliver us from the captivity of guilt, sin, and death. You see, Jesus is the true and better king, and now we see Jesus is the true and better servant of the Lord. It's in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 that we see four descriptions of this servant of the Lord. And the last one, we looked at, uh, I think it was the last sermon in Isaiah we pre that I preached from. God gives us this description of the suffering servant in chapter 52, verses 11 through chapter 53 of the Lord Jesus Christ. The suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah says, listen, the suffering servant's going to come. We have this description of this atoning sacrifice, of this suffering servant as he suffers and becomes our substitute and he dies in our place. And then chapter 55, the last chapter of the second section, 40 through 55, the very last chapter, Pastor Perry Jones preached a message on it. He spoke about the, this, this glorious invitation of all people, the poor, the thirsty, the hungry souls to come to the free banquet of Christ, salvation in Christ. It was a glorious ending to the second section. Now this last section, chapters 56 through 66, begins once again speaking of God's people's failures and yet God's promise of redemption and grace and glory for the future remnant of God's people. That's why we're calling it the gospel according 
to Isaiah because he speaks about our brokenness and he speaks about God's salvation over and over and over again. Again, Isaiah is in the 8th century. Now he's writing to a people that have returned from exile. That's what this next section is. They've returned. They were in the land. They were in exile. Now they returned from exile. And we don't know exactly when, the exact date we're unsure about. But we know that when they came back, Jerusalem was not the way it used to be. Seventy years, Jeremiah said they were there. Seventy years they were there. And Jerusalem and Judah are not the, not, not the same. There's a lot of speculation exactly what was going on, but I don't think that's important. I think what's important uh, as we look at this next chapter is not the dates exactly, but to see the grace of God coupled with the future of what Isaiah is talking about is what really matters. And what we'll see as we jump in the next few chapters, uh, especially the first chapter uh, of 56, is the reality of the broken heart, the reality of the sinful heart, the reality of, of, of our own sinful nature being comfortable and going back to sinful habits, sinful ways that are contrary to the ways and the will and the word of God. That's what we'll see in chapter 56. And that's why I want to cover it verse by verse. We're going to cover it in a larger section because a lot of it is a rehashing, rethemes we've already seen in the 45 chapters before. So, and all that's going to continue, and Isaiah is going to show us. We're going to continue to live in this broken world, in a broken body, in, 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 a, in a body that, is, that is, struggles with sin until chapter 66 with the new heavens and the new earth when God renews all things. And we enter into eternity with him, with a new glorified body that is sinless. Unfathomable. But that's God's promise to us. So we're going to look at this next chapter, uh, next section, 56 through 59, in five movements, okay? So have your Bibles open. Again, I'm not putting all the verses up. We're going to hit the main themes, and we're going to move on. The first thing I want to see is God's people living in grace. Look at with me in chapter 56, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Look over at verse 6. B, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Now, what I want you to see in this text, and it's very important, that God is not saying to us or to Isaiah that you must work for grace. You must work for his salvation. Actually, he's saying these are the things we ought to do and to live out because of God's grace and God's salvation. It's the obligation of the people of God who have been redeemed to act justly and to, to do what's right and to hold fast to the covenant, covenant, his pledge, his promise. So we can enter into God's presence and holy mountain and joyfully worship him. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. There I will bring, verse 7, my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now, hopefully your Bibles are open again. Just look with me again in verse uh, verse 1 and 56. When it says, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation. That word for, the Hebrew word, is because. Because of my salvation. In other words, obedience to be lived out as a response to salvation. Man, we talk about this all the time. 
Religion is I, I, I obey God and God loves me. The gospel is Jesus obeyed God in my place perfectly, lived that perfect life, died on a Roman cross. He saves me by grace and therefore I respond in obedience. You get that wrong, you're in bondage. It's precisely because of the gracious work of God that we are to live as a blessed man who keeps the word of God, who keeps the will of God, who understands the covenant and walks in God's covenant. Notice what it says too. It says all the people are supposed to walk this way. Look at that. Verse three, the foreigner. Verse four, the eunuch, who was not allowed, according to Moses, into the temple. Now they're all to hold fast to the Sabbath, to come and worship and trust God and hold fast to God's covenant. They're invited to come to the holy mountain to bring burnt offerings to the house of God. Verse seven. In fact, look, verse 5 again. The eunuch, the one who trusts in God, who can't have any children for obvious reasons, have, have a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. They are all invited, the foreigner, the eunuchs, all people, the Israelites, verse 7, to bring to my house their sacrifices and my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. God is gathering his people. The Sabbath was a time when God's people not only joined to worship him, and both the Israelites and the, the non-Israelites would come to the temple. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Everyone obligated to come and worship God. And if, 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 if you're relying on God's grace, if you're resting in the salvation that God has provided, and, you're, and then you're, you're keeping the Sabbath, which was for the Jewish people, and holding fast to his covenant, the new covenant is for us, then it would, this all would be, and this is really important, an outward expression of a heart that truly loves God, that, that truly trusts God, that truly rests in God's grace, and, and finds God's joy in God's house. You see, Sabbath was a time when people of God gathered together and, and not only did they worship God, but it was a day in which they rested because they trusted God. That God would provide for them. That's what it was about. And they don't need the labor, they need to rest in God. And what matters for us, brothers and sisters, and what matters to God is that we rest in Christ. And if our heart is resting in Christ, it says he will give us a home, come to my place, to my home, to my mountain and worship. If you notice, and some of you know your New Testament, that verse in, in verse uh, 7b or 7c at the end, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Does that sound familiar? Jesus quoted in Mark 11. You remember the scene? Jesus enters into the temple and everybody went the same way into the largest port a part of the temple called the court of Gentiles or the, the court of ethnos, the court of nations. And it would come through that. And, and, and it, during Jesus' day, the Israelites had set up uh, their business operation there. And when Jesus was there, it was the Passover. It could have been millions of people there, or at least a million or two. A lot of people, because all the males were, what, mandatory to come to Jerusalem. So they're coming from all over. And in that day, there were, there were animals everywhere for sacrifice. And everyone was trying to get into the temple at least at one point during the day or the next day. And rather than bring your animals from a distance, what they would do is the, the Jewish people would, would gather some money. And when they travel, they would get to Jerusalem and they would purchase 
their animal. Better than bringing animals all the way from wherever you're coming from. And when they would come with the money, their money would be foreign money. And the people set up in this temple where the Gentiles uh, were, and they would set up these money changing. You bring your foreign coin, and we'll give you the, the Hebrew money. And by the way, it's 20%. Up to 20%, you lose. Like, yeah, it sounds familiar. Then you went and brought the animal sacrifice. And in verse 15 of Mark 11, when Jesus quotes this, this, this verse, it says that Jesus began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. That's what they were doing. And the seats, I love that part, and the seats of those who were selling doves. Okay? Not, we're not talking plastic tables. 2,000 years ago, wooden tables, strong Jesus, not the flower guy with the sandals, with the blonde wavy hair. Jesus is overthrowing tables and the seats of those who were selling doves. I believe they were in the seat when he threw it. That's just my opinion. He walks in there like he owns the place. Because he does. My house. He says, my house. You see, Jesus drove out the sellers of animals, not only because there was thievery going on, not only because they were in the ethnos, the, the nation, uh, the gathering where the nations were, but he is saying, I am the true and only sacrifice to take away sins. I am here to cleanse the Jewish people, to cleanse the Gentiles, to cleanse all nations can come to me. I'm the substitutionary sacrifice. You don't need the animals. I will die and shed my blood. Verse 18 in Mark says this, the chief priests and the scribes, the Bible thumpers, heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You see, Isaiah sees the servant of the Lord who substitutionary atoning death opens the door as an invitation for all people the coming of Christ blows the door open. The gathering of the outcasts have begun. And friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that the invitation is still available today. Jesus Christ himself invites you to come to him this morning. Come with a confessing and believing heart. He is the new covenant whose blood was sealed and shed and sealed our pardon. Don't wait. Come. Number two, God's people living as they are. Unfortunately, as we've seen this so many times with Isaiah, he shows this marvelous goodness of God, and then he shows the brokenness of God's people. This passage from chapter 56, verse 9, through chapter 57, verse 13, is a reality check. And, and they're living in, they're, they're back in, uh, from exile. There's a community of believers. And God, and we've seen this before in Isaiah, goes directly to the leadership of that community. Because the leadership is critical. Leaders are to be, look at chapter uh, 56, verse 9. They are to be a watchman. They are to look out. Right? Watchmen look out and, and, and protect they, they are to be on the lookout for danger and on the alert for dangers, for threats. Verse 1, beasts who devour their prey. Uh, excuse me, verse 9, beasts that devour their prey. And they are to be watchmen. Look at verse 11. They are also shepherds. 
You have watchmen and shepherds. What do shepherds do? They care for people. Shepherds are called to nurture, to protect, to provide, to feed the flock of God. But, unfortunately, in that day and our day, some shepherds just want to feed themselves. I praise God for the men you have here. Pastor Bill, Ricky, Chris, Perry. They love you guys. And they sacrifice a lot for you. But these were not doing it. These leaders weren't. They weren't watching out. They weren't careful. They weren't protecting and they weren't providing. Look at verse 11b. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned their own way. Each to his own gain. See, the, see where they're going? One and all. Come, they say, let, let, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. In other words, just continue to live for themselves. But it was the apostle Peter who reminds the pastors and the elders in 1 Peter 5 to shepherd the flock, to serve, to care, to protect, to provide, to love, to sacrifice for the flock. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not on the compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domin- uh, domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see, these are the persons who are supposed to be foregoing their own sinful pleasures and desires for the good of others. That's what shepherds are called for. God has designed his people to be cared for by God-fearing, God-loving God-serving shepherds. And what happens when there is not leadership or that leadership is lacking, instead of encouraging, strengthening right behavior to people who are sincerely seeking the Lord, the community becomes open to evil. People who want to exploit them and good people are actually attacked. No one comes to their defense. Look at chapter 57, verses 1 and 2. The righteous man, verse 1, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to the heart. The righteous person, the one who, who seeks the will, who seeks the word of God, is disappearing from the community. He says he enters into his peace, they rest they rest in their beds. In other words, the, 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 the ones who are seeking the Lord, the ones who are, uh, are, are loving the Lord, the, the righteous ones that are doing what is right are being gathered. They're, they're disappearing from the community. All the result of, of failed leadership. And what happens next? Is, it's, just, it's just spirals. Look at verse 3. Right, this is what happens when, when faithful people come underneath unfaithful leaders, okay? And when, when leaders are leading the nation, leaders are leading the nation, the church, in the wrong direction. Downward spiral, verse 3. But you draw near sons of sorcerers, it's about, it's about false religion, superstition, and idolatry. But you draw near sons of sorcerers, offsprings of the adulterers and the loose women, Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? (laughs) Are you not children of transgressions, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock. They're slaughtering children too. Verse 7 and 8. On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. 
Okay, you know what he's talking about. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You gave, you have gone up to it. You have made it wide and you made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved your, their bed. You have looked on nakedness. The sin of idolatry, worshiping and serving other gods. And the imagery here couldn't be more stark and clear. It, it, it sounds like Isaiah, we see this in, in Ezekiel, um, idolaters, those who chase after these, these idols are, are described like an animal in heat. When an animal is, is mating season, no stopping. And then the craving is a picture of the craving and bondage to sin. The, the sin and the power of sin that enslaves us. And the Bible is interesting. The Bible consistently talks about God's covenant with us is marital in nature. In other words, God speaks of his bride and, and, and his lover and how we are to love God. And he is the father and we are his children. And we are, uh, we are the bride of Christ, the Bible talks about, right? Isaiah, Hosea is another book that, that, that when we treat God as if he's not enough and we're searching after other things rather than resting in God, being satisfied in God, it's called spiritual whoredom. That's just what the scriptures teach. When we don't bring all our emptiness to Christ, when we're not satisfied in him alone, it's called idolatry. So we are called on as God's people to find out Ultimate joy, our, our ultimate satisfaction, our pleasure and fulfillment ultimately in Christ. But let's be honest. I think it was Calvin. Our hearts are idle factories. We're constantly looking to spread our devotion, our allegiance, our love around and sacrifice to other gods as we give our time and our money to things that are not God. Something in our heart just doesn't Something in our heart just doesn't believe that God alone is enough to satisfy and we chase other things. Whatever in the place where God ought to be, that's our Savior. And sin is not just failing to obey God. It's, it's placing our whole heart into something else or onto something else. It's not just doing bad things, but making the good things into the ultimate things. We talk a lot about idolatry here. I won't, I won't belabor but everyone looks to something other than God that makes you feel worthy, that makes you feel, you have meaning, that functions as, as uh, or meaning in life, your functional savior. And God says, no, you know what? If it's not me, it owns you. You'll need it to survive, and you'll always chase after it, and it'll never satisfy. Isaiah would say, verse 8, you made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their nakedness. What's interesting about this, uh, about uh, chapter 57 too, and this idolatry, is according to Isaiah, look at verse 11, it's not only setting the heart on something besides God chasing after this, chasing after something, it involves the fear of man. Or, or we could say that the reverence that belongs to God is to given to someone else. 57 verse 11, whom do you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me? You see, the thing that we fear the most, we've talked about fear a lot, the thing, that, the, the thing that we fear the most, the thing that we need the most, we revere the most, the, one that, the thing that has captured our heart is what we are worshiping. And if it's not God, it's idolatry. Remember, fear and faith can't coexist. And what happens is, and family, you know, 
when we talk about fear, we're talking about positive fear in a sense of reverence and awe, okay? When we have negative fear, when we are afraid, we're not trusting God. When, the ultimate, when, when, we, when we ultimately honor and trust other things, no matter what it is, and not allowing ourselves to be guided by the reverence and awe of God, but rather be guided by the fears of this world, we'll fall into idolatry. Why? Because we're trusting and relying and clinging to something that cannot ultimately save. Now look down at verse 13. Um, you can slide it over, but slide over. Look at down at verse 13. Although we're the ones who commit idolatry, he still invites us to enter his goodness. Look at verse 13, chapter 57. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off and breath will take them away. But, I love it. Great word in the Bible. But, <laughs> he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit the holy mountain. Even when we are the ones who, are, who treat God poorly, who run after things that will never satisfy, God invites you to come. And he invites me to come to him. He says, idols could never deliver you. They're useless. There's no foundation. The wind will blow them away. But whoever puts his trust, his confidence, his reliance in God will not go without the reward, the enjoyment, the inheritance, the promised land. And for us, it would be that restored relationship in eternity with God. It's never too late. It's never too late. While you're alive and you're here and you're not sleeping and you're awake. <laughs> to abandon the worthless protection of the idols that we've created out of human pride and fear and trust in God. Again, there's a difference between consideration and, and, and planning. We're talking about ultimate fear. Number three, God's people live humbly. In verses, uh, chapter 57, verses 14 through 21, Isaiah gives us hope, back to hope for the humble and the contrite. Look at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, chapter 57, verse 15, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also... Underscore that in your Bible. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. All right, God's, this is what it means to walk with the Lord, right? It's not just faith and trust in God's promises, but it's also to be contrite. Now that word literally means to be crushed. It means to be penitent. It means the people who are weeping over the brokenness of their sins, or the brokenness of sins that are around us. And it reminds me of, when I was studying this, it reminds me of, of chapter 6, way back. When Isaiah, in the year Uzziah died, Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God. And he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the angels, the seraphims flying, calling out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And, and Isaiah has a typical response of anyone who acknowledges and sees the holiness of God. He, he's crushed. He says, woe is me. I am lost. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Recognize his sin and the sin of others. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And as God reveals this sovereignty, this supremacy, this infinite gap between the world and him, there's only one response that's proper and that's brokenness crushed. And God said, look, that's the pathway into my presence. It was for Isaiah. It was for Isaiah. Do you remember after that, one of the seraphims flew, took a burning coal that was on the altar, pointing to the work of Jesus, touched his mouth and said, your, lip, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. See, humility, brokenness, the presence of God. How do we do that? We come into the presence of a holy God through Jesus Christ, the Savior, and God promises that not only because of Jesus is the atoning work on the cross, but he's going to revive our hearts. He's, he says he's going to revive, this, revive the spirit of the lowly and contrite heart of the, of the oppressed who will come to him in repentance and faith. But you have to be humble. You have to acknowledge your sin, your brokenness. Look at verses 16 through 19. God says, no, you, you deserve to be judged. You're pursuing sinful desires of your heart. Look at verse 17. You're the, black, the backsliding, verse 17. But he went on backsliding the way of his own heart. But God. <laughs> but God. Verse 18. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I'll restore comfort to him and his mourners. And the result of, of this, this inter, in, in, I don't say interference, but this, this God coming in and doing the healing, and, and, and we see that the praise of the lips of those sinners, verse 19, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Family, let, let's, let's, let's admit our need. Let, let, let's delight, let's sing and shout of God's remedy. Let's be humble people. Give ourselves permission to experience the humility and grace of the gospel. John Piper writes this. This is the fact. God is above. We are beneath. We are not worthy to untie his shoes. The distance between God and us is infinite. His greatness, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his truth, his holiness, his mercy and grace are as high above ours as the heavens are above the earth. Humility knows it is dependent on grace for all knowing, believing, living, and acting. End quote. Now, before we go to number four, I just want to point out one thing. You look in your Bible. Look at verse 15 again. And I ask you to undermark it if you have a Bible, you'd like to mark your Bible. It says, I dwell in the holy, excuse me, I dwell in the high and holy place and also God talking with him who is contrite and lowly spirit. Where is God? Two places, right? He's, he's in the high place where we can't go and he dwells where we are, the lowly and the contrite. And the word dwells, interesting, comes from the word tabernacle. Where God dwelt among his people is where we get the word Shekinah glory from. The, 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 the Shekinah glory is the, the presence of God in the temple, the Shekinah glory. And God says, I dwell in the high places and I dwell among my people. Isn't that the incarnation? 
Isn't that the work of Christ? Isn't that the miracle incarnation, the birth of Jesus is all about? The tabernacling of, of the God in the Son who humbled himself, Philippians 2.6. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, yet without sin. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John says the word was with God, the word was God, and the word dwelt, tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace of truth. Listen, there's no one that humble but Jesus. He dwelt among us, leaving his Father's side in glory, took on frail humanity, again, without sin, to identify with us so that he can be an acceptable sacrifice for us. He's the perfect embodiment, an ultimate embodiment of the presence of God. But, as we'll see in our last chapter here, God's divine presence here has been given to us as a church. 1 Corinthians teaches us. Collectively, as we gather the presence of the Holy Spirit among us and given to us as individuals, 1 Corinthians 6. God is pleased to dwell among us. Now that God, Jesus has died, rose, and, and ascended to heaven, his spirit dwells within us as we gather and within us individually. Have you ever heard the invitation of Jesus? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You're carrying a burden. And God says, I will give you rest. But Isaiah ends chapter 57, that the wicked will not be comforted. There's no humility for them. They refuse to acknowledge their sin, turn from it. They can't experience the shalom of God. Look what it says at the very end. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. Number four. And number five, we'll go to communion. People living hypocritically or as hypocrites. Chapter 58, turn there with me. God's called out his people for lack of justice. I'm not going to cover that this morning. What I am going to cover is the fact that in this chapter, he calls out them for their foolish and their false ways that they fast. Okay? Fasting. Maybe you never heard that before. From early in times, people were called to fast. They were called, it, it had to do with bereavement, brokenness, repentance, prayer. God's word in, through Moses calls us to fast for the day of atonement. And then God's people have taken that up and have, have, have used it for many other reasons for fasting. It marks like uh, uh, hard days, difficult days. Uh, they used to fast uh, in memory of the destruction of the temple in 587 B.C. And they would gather together these solemn assemblies in their communities and fast. If you read the New Testament, it will be in Luke, you'll see it. They were fasting in the New Testament as well. There, a fast would, would include denying oneself usually food or, or, or drink. Um, eating, drinking, it would be, and you would, some of you fasted before, and when you fast and you, you self-deny, you're, you're, you deny yourself food or drink, it's for the process of doing what? Praying, right? Seeking the Lord. Looking for wisdom. Getting comfort from God. Sometimes people would sackcloth, put sackcloth on in the old days and ashes on the hair. They would tear their clothes. They would cry out for God and for, for you to please intercede on my behalf. 
And God would see, that's the hope, God would see their pain and their sorrow and their hurting and this, this expression of self-denial that they were going to in their repentance, and God would respond. God would respond and, and intervene and help the individual through the process. In and of itself, fasting is a good thing, but like anything else in our religious days, in our rituals, in our ceremonies, it can be dangerous. It can create this false impression of how great and holy you are. I am, right? Something not even a close to reality, and then it sinks into the self-righteousness. Look how good I am, I fast. Chapter 58, verse 3. Behold, in a day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a, with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. The believers, Isaiah is challenging. is this role-playing self-righteousness called hypocrisy. We get that word from an actor from the Greek uh, back in the Greek days, uh, the actor would put a, 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 something in front of them of another face, and they would, they would play the part. It, it was fake. They were acting it out. It wasn't true. It wasn't right. It was, a, it was a false appearance. Jesus had a lot to say about the Pharisees. He's like, outwardly, you guys look great. You're supposed to be these holy people of God. Pharisee comes from the word separate ones. But yet, what did he say to them? Inside. You cared more about the way you looked. You cared more about the fame you got than you cared about love, grace, mercy, and kindness, the things that I'm interested in. That's exactly what happened. It's a fake fast. God is not interested in our devotion by, by, to, by making ourselves hungry and miserable while we don't care about anybody else and we're not obligated to serve and love other people. It's not acceptable to the Lord. Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to hide yourself and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, serve people, man. Love people. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Remember in Luke 18, we're going to be in Luke. The, the tax collector and the Pharisee both went up to the temple. Remember that story? They both go up to the temple. And Jesus said, look, I'm telling this parable because of self-righteousness. And he goes, the Pharisee standing there said, God, I thank you. I'm not like them. <laughs> Extortionist, unjust. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. A lot of eyes in that. Tax collector can't even look up. He just pounds on his chest. God, be merciful to me. First thing out of his mouth is God. The second thing out of his mouth is be merciful to me. And Jesus says, you know who went away justified? Right with God? Wasn't the, wasn't the Pharisee, was the tax collector. Why? Because the tax collector started with God. And he said, be merciful to me. That, that's an interesting word. That has to do with atonement. In other words, he, his, his justification rested not on what he did, but what God had done for him. He walked away justified. And when our relationships and our relationship with God is based on God's unending grace, 
We are ready and we are able to use the disciplines of grace, habits of grace like fasting, coming to church, giving of your tithes and offering. If it's a matter of, of, of the extension or the pouring out of grace, that it is acceptable before God because there's humility there and not hypocrisy. Look at verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's what we're looking for. And last, God's redeemed people. Verse 1 of chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God announces that it's because of their sins that he has been at a distance from them. Okay? His hand is not too short to save. It's the sin that is the problem. And just in case people are confused and they're not really sure, are you really talking about me? Is, is there really a, a reason uh, that, that I can't walk into the presence of a holy God? Isaiah goes into this barrage of reasons in verse 3. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your hands are doing sin, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness, the things that you say. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly, there's, there's corruption going on. They rely on empty pleas, they plead, excuse me, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, they got their hands, their lips, and their feet. As swift to shed innocent blood, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Now they're thinking, man, he's, he's hitting it all. Your mouth, your hands, your feet, and your mind. No justice, verse 8. It's a, it's a list. I'm sure we could find something in that list we, category we fall under, right? If you're not sure, ask the person next to you. Paul said it very succinctly in Roman. All have sinned. What's that verse? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They missed the mark of the glory of God. None of us live in complete obedience to God because we all fail to give him his glory that is due him, that treasuring him above all things, his infinite value, his incalculable worth above everything in the universe. And what does God say to Isaiah? Listen, you got to try harder. You got to get better. You got to go to church more. No, because our hearts are, from the beginning, stubborn. So what does he say? Look at verse 12. What are we to do? Look at verse 12. And notice the change. God's speaking. Now verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. See what's happening? Our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our, there's a confession going on. Our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. It's confession. 
There's repentance. There's this list of sin saying, you have violated my law, you have broken my commands, and there's this, yes, Lord, I have, and we have done this. See that? There's, there's, there's confession and repentance. But now look down at verse 16. Ben, you can come up and get ready. Another two minutes. Look down at verse 16 with me. This is a great verse. Chapter 59, verse 16. He, that's God, saw that there was no man and wondered, not wondered like, what am I going to do? This is for our benefit. And wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then, verse 16b, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on a righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He, God, put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. His own arm that was too, not too short to save, worked salvation, upheld by his righteousness. The zeal of God, the glory of God for the salvation of his people moved him to action. He clothed himself with armor for battle. Listen, there is no one in all of Scripture, there's no one in all of creation that fits this description of verse 16 and 17 other than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one. In fact, Revelation 19 speaks of Jesus, the Word of God, as having a sword coming out of his mouth with which he will strike down the nations. And God has raised up his son as a suffering servant who will not only bring salvation, bring redemption, for redemption has come in Christ, but he will be, listen family, the Lord Jesus Christ will be the instrument of God's vengeance. Revelation 19 is perfectly clear. And the vengeance he will inflict in the name of the Father, of his Holy Father, will be dreadful. Verse 20, what a way to close this section. And the Redeemer will come to Zion. The arm of the Lord, the Redeemer, will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, that's repentance, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offsprings, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now listen, family. Christ the Redeemer comes. He will inflict those who refuse to come to him, and he will redeem the repentant sinners who turn from their sins that were in slavery to sin and redeem them, purchase them back. And the security of this commitment, listen, is the covenant he makes, a pledge to himself, and to us that he will redeem his people, the new covenant with which he stands and which his spirit will be poured out, it says in his verse, upon them, upon their words, and in their mouth. And you have these gifts that will come, the redeemer and the spirit, as a conclusion of this chapter saying, the redeemer will come. His arm is not too short, he will save. He will bring vengeance and he will bring salvation. What a conclusion. He guarantees our future and explains how he's going to bring it to fruition by the Redeemer, by his word, and by his spirit. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was getting ready to go to the cross. His, his face was set to go. 
The gospel according to Luke chapter 22. The Bible says that he took bread and he broke the bread and he gave thanks. He gave thanks. He said to them, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the Bible says that he took the cup. And after they had eaten, he said, this cup is poured out for you. Is the new covenant in my blood. As we come to communion, you, you know you're growing in the gospel. You know you're growing in the grace and the knowledge of God when our lives are marked by what? Repentance and faith. Becoming less and less a hypocrite and more and more genuinely in love with Christ, our Redeemer. And family, I will tell you, and friends, I will tell you, time is short. There's a time when Jesus will come back and vengeance will be poured out and repentance will be no longer but now is not the day and the moment. God loves you and God supplied salvation for you. He sent the Redeemer for you. He will give you his spirit to renew you and to give you different desires, desire to love and to serve him. Remember the gospel that Christ died in our place, that he lived that perfect life we could never live. And by faith in him, we walk by grace. Have you ever trusted Christ? Have you ever placed your faith in Christ? Do you know that he loves you? Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. That's what this table's about. The bread is, represents the body that was broken. The blood represents his blood that was shed. The band's gonna play. We're gonna spend a few minutes in, in, in confession and repentance. And when you're ready, just come down the aisles here. Grab your communion, sit back down, and I'll come up and lead us through uh, the partaking of the bread and the cup together. The table's for Christians. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, come to the table. If you're not, we're glad you're here. We wanna talk to you. And maybe right now is the day. The moment where you say, I trusted Christ. I believe he died for my sins. I believe his body was broken. I believe his blood was shed so that I can have forgiveness of sin and come to, into his presence. If that's you, you can come too. Take communion together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reality and, and showing us and teaching us that we are sinners, but that you are merciful and loving and kind. And Lord, thank you for reminding us this morning that you have provided a redeemer. You have provided salvation. You have provided a way to come into your holy mountain, to come into your temple, to come into your very presence. And that is through Jesus. So God, we pray that as your people, we'll live a life of repentance and faith, that we'll continue to trust you, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, and celebrating the work of Jesus on the cross. We pray as we continue to... Worship you in the partaking of communion, Lord. You would get glory. And that you would speak to our hearts. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's hypocrisy. May, whatever it may be that we need to just confess and repent to you right now, Lord. I pray that your spirit would do that work. And then we would just joyfully sing and worship you as we take of the communion. And we, and we drink of the cup remembering all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.